This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Benjamin Rolski is an adjunct professor in the History and Anthropology Department at Monmouth University and a lecturer in the Religion Department at Rutgers University. Professor Rolski began his studies at Arizona State University, went on to earn his Doctor of Philosophy in American Religious Studies at Drew University. In addition to his teaching, Professor Rolski's research focuses on the intersection of religion, politics, and popular culture. His first major book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond, was published by Columbia University Press, and we're going to talk about that book today. Benjamin Rolski, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you very much for having me. I've um, been really looking forward to this. So when I read a book like uh, like your book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond, I can see so many points of entry into this question, but, but how did you trip up on this as a scholar? How did you determine that this project uh, would be your preoccupation for a considerable amount of time? Well, it's an autobiographical story. Um, I was raised really on 1970s television. Um, I certainly wasn't old enough, um, you know, obviously to have seen any of it. Uh, but in my house growing up, um, we watched things like Mary Tyler Moore fairly often. We watched um, All in the Family, of course, MASH, Taxi, those sorts of things. And um, so I was always shaped in some capacity by sort of programming of the period and I've always been fascinated in television and television history and how friends are portrayed, friendship networks are portrayed. Um, back in the 70s, there was always some sort of moral center, it seemed like, like a Hawkeye Pierce or a Mary or Alex or something from Taxi. And so I've always been you know, fascinated by this medium, um, in particular the 1970s. And, and so as, as I was making my way through graduate school um, or my PhD program up at um, Drew University here in um, Jersey, I um, it would sort of come in and out of my head often or every once in a while doing coursework, classes, exams, that kind of thing. And and one day I really stumbled upon a couple of texts uh, from the 80s that had Lear, Mr. Lear, Norman Lear, um, had blurbs on the back of the texts. So I think there was a book that came out in the early 80s called The Bible Vote by Peggy Shriver, I think, those associated with union at the time, and I started putting pieces together, connecting the dots, and I think the final straw was finding out the origins of People for the American Way, which is Norman Lear's nonprofit and, you know, interfaith. It involved people like Theodore Hesburgh, Martin Marty from back in the 70s and that 70s, 80s transitional period, and it just, uh, in some ways, began to write itself, (laughs) which was kind of wonderful, and I decided to sort of take a look at Lear's sort of catalog across the board and and see what I could do with it. And luckily, people are engaging it or they're interested in it, and I really couldn't be happier. Well, I can see the tie to television and uh, appreciate that from your own uh, uh, youth. But what's interesting to me is uh, how theological your interest became in this project. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a distinctive addition to the scholarly literature in this area. But let me back up just a little bit further and say that... uh, uh, for for many listening, some of these names will be unfamiliar to them. Um, mm. I, and I'm older than you, and uh, so I I was I was a teenager when a lot of this uh, w- was happening, 
And uh, yet, and, and I could sense there was something, even as a teenager, I, I could sense that there was something afoot as a major change in American culture as reflected in, uh, in even sitcoms. It's, it's, it's a long way to jump from Ozzy and Harriet to All in the Family. Yes, so, it is. Something's I obviously happened. And, uh, and, and yet the, the theological angle behind it is also a fascination to me because I lived right. this as well as, as, a, right. uh, as a, a theological conservative in America. Uh, Norman Lear identified conservative Christianity as like the great impediment to social progress and exactly. had a theological agenda. And, and yet so many on the, uh, in, in the secular academia, frankly, would have no interest in that. How did that dimension come to interest you? Well, right. So as you're saying, you know, theologically, um, Lear is certainly participating in a broad kind of civil religious imagination, you know, broadly considered. He flew in the Second World War, um, supported things like Protestants and Catholics and Jews kind of parading around the country and trying to create some support um, for a more sort of civically minded cause in defense of America and democracy. Um, but I actually just taught a course on the counterculture um, here at Monmouth. And to me, the programming in the early 70s is something called relevant programming. Um, and that word was in the air theologically. Um, if you look at some of, the, uh, some of the material or articles from the period, you have a number of different things happening seismically. Um, things are taking off for charismatic evangelical fundamentalist communities. On the other hand, it's a little bit of a drop-off. Um, and the debate about you know, that kind of falling off is still ongoing. Um, and so for, for someone like Lear, theologically, he fits into a an idea of television isn't just something that lights up a box. It's not just a bunch of lights. It's not just this thing that you look at. It had a didactic purpose. Um, so not unlike the gospel on behalf of, say, civil rights in the 1960s, Lear uses television um, to project onto sort of America a more civic vision or his own vision of how we thought America should operate um, in many ways. So for lack of, really for the sake of discussion, if out of this period, we have something called the electronic church. Uh, for all intents and purposes, we have the electronic classroom uh, with something like Norman Lear's All in the Family. Um, so to me, that's how I sort of located him in the period and that drive to make popular culture relevant, to make religion relevant, to make theology relevant. Obviously, we're coming out of the death of God kind of theology in the early to mid-60s. He's not per se involved in that. He's identifying as a Jewish person in addition that's where the uh, sort of the interfaith sort of aspect comes into play. Grew up listening to Father Coggan in the 20s and 30s. He went to, grew up in New Haven, hearing about the quotas about Jewish people at Yale. Um, so for him to be Jewish in a certain way is to kind of remember that, is to have, sure. is to hold on, such that in the 70s when, can't remember who it was, but the president of the Southern Baptist Convention at the time, you know, quoted correctly or not, says God does not hear the prayer of a Jew. And for someone like Lear, that struck a chord. And so oftentimes that's why he sees, or he saw, well, he sees, he's 97 now, so, you know, still sees conservatism, or at least a certain understanding of conservatism, a branding of conservatism as an obstacle. Because uh, oftentimes he's hearing resonances from the 20s and 30s of his upbringing. So yeah. he's making television relevant, like you said. Like the most watched show of the 60s is the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, it's not all in the family, obviously, that's in the early 70s. So he's, try, he's trying to make TV apply to what's happening. And so yeah. he, you know, couldn't get any bigger pleasure than hearing people talk about his show the day after in the office around the water cooler. 
So if we can say that that's a theological value of sorts, you know, this kind of relevance idea, that's kind of what I went with and what I grounded a lot of his, uh, a lot of the interpretation on. So there's a bit of history here. I want to move to uh, Lear Television and that big change, but let me go backwards just a bit. And you're kind of uniquely situated in an ironic way to uh, to think about that. Um, in the mid 1950s. Uh, a professor at Drew University, as a matter of fact, where you did your doctorate, Will Herberg, wrote a famous book, yeah. Protestant Catholic Jew. Yeah. And uh, I never knew him, but I certainly knew of his work. And uh, if, you, if you look at American culture in the 1950s, you got the background of the Cold War, the aftermath of the Second World War, cultural cohesiveness, uh, a newly assertive kind of uh, official uh, civil religion, which is is not theologically specific, but it's just generalized as kind of a mainstream faith uh, mm-hmm. of a godly America over against a godless uh, Soviet Union. You've got Dwight Eisenhower, you know, uh, every great religion needs a faith. I don't particularly care which faith it is, to paraphrase him. Um, and Herberg's uh, Protestant Catholic Jew identified what Herberg saw, who was a big believer in, in, in uh, both theology in a serious way, but also in civil religion as necessary, he, he, he branded that Protestant Catholic Jew as if to say, there is this mainstream now, and we're all a part of the same project. And if you're not mm-hmm. a part of that project, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, either to the left or the right, you're probably dangerous. And, and that left uh, a lot of conservative Protestants out of his definition of Protestant. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet by the time you get to the 1960s, it's clear mm-hmm. that mainline Protestantism is numerically in retreat and conservative evangelicalism is growing. That has mm-hmm. to be a part of, of what set the context for all this. Absolutely it is, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I wish I had gone back to the 50s to contextualize it in that way. I delved back into Robert Bella's, you know, the sociologist right. who basically coins the phrase in the late 60s, I delved back into that text. You know, we periodically have to delve into it for different courses and different topics and such. But even then, um, and I didn't realize it, when I delved back into it, Bella is still using a certain straw man in some capacity to render what civil religion is. Um, In some capacity, it's a little bit suffocating in some capacity. You know, whether you go back to Mead or whether you go back to Bella, I think in some in some instances, you know, I think I think the phrase is, I don't know if he says John Birch types or nationalist types or something like that, um, but the very idea itself of civil religion can be read as a little bit um, constraining, you know, like you said, a little bit more about a perhaps a pluralist project that might actually not be all that pluralist, per se. And when we're talking about civil religion, the important bit to me is the civil part. Right. Because then we get into how liberal democracies define religion, and oftentimes they're civil, and those that are not tend to be a little bit looked at askew. Um, so sure, I mean, built into those larger pluralist kind of projects are a very kind of limited mainline Protestant vision um, that might not be the most expansive. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think even now, work is still unpacking this, you know, ideas of pluralism or religious pluralism or even civil religion or even the idea can be idolatrous. You know, civil religion oh, was absolutely. You know, yeah. considered to be sort of the thing that undergirded Vietnam and undergirded any number of kind of nationalist sort of visions. So, yeah, I, I didn't realize that, though. Even in Bella's own articulation, there's this kind of specter of the conservative. You know, in addition, sure. the Hofstetters are writing about this. Daniel Bell is writing about this in any number of collections on the new right. Um, so, yeah, I, that's what I hope my second book hopefully takes up is 
sort of the history of sort of mm-hmm. conservatism and how it's reacting to some of these changes and how it ultimately kind of emerges victorious in many ways. I've been thinking a lot, you know, I'm not sure we live in the world of King per se. We might live in the world of, of Reagan, perhaps. Um, it's something that I continue to think about. Yeah, probably to some degree in both. And uh, I, yeah, I yeah. came of age uh, at a time when uh, conservatism is just beginning to regain its institutional legitimacy and its uh, intellectual uh, cohesiveness uh, with the William F. Buckley Jr. and uh, the whole uh, crowd around National Review. But before that, it had been a long time in the wilderness. Uh and, and I think one of the things people wouldn't recognize today when, we, when we've got digital media and everybody can be a publisher and everybody can be a producer, uh, right. the uh, means of cultural production, to use that term, were just incredibly tightly held. So, so much so that I was telling someone the other day, uh, conservative uh, voices in American religion sometimes had to act illegally. I think of Carl McIntyre. Uh, I guess he didn't act illegally, but he had to have a pirate ra- radio ship, you know, off the coast of the United States, out in international waters, just to broadcast. Quite literally, yeah, back to the United States, and you know, th- now that seems inconceivable. But uh, w- those we would call not only fundamentalists but conservative evangelicals had just no access uh, to the communications media much at all. Yeah, I get into that a little bit. Um, some colleagues of mine are writing about talk radio you know, as yeah. far as a venue that's, that was claimed. But in many ways, yeah, I mean, I get into a chapter, I get into that in, in, a, in a chapter where I look at, you know, the origins of the FCC and the origins of this idea of the public interest and what that, and then sort of what that means. Um, I mean, even my own research on the back end of the book for the variety show I Love Liberty, you know, I talk a little bit about how someone like Jerry Falwell reached out to Norman Lear and he said, you know, can I be part of this? And Lear said something like, well, you know, we don't want any, like, lectures, or, like, we don't want any speeches, yeah. per se. Um, so, yeah, I think that story is relatively common in the sense of, you know, if anyone's been entrepreneurial, I suppose it's been the conservative for those very reasons that you say, uh, which goes back to, say, the 20s and 30s and the FCC is getting off the ground, and it has to sort of regulate, I suppose, or legislate yeah. with Coughlin in mind. Um, you know, it's a little bit abrasive. It's a little bit confrontational. And the FCC is trying to figure out, you know, how to build in a notion of kind of good religion or this idea of a kind of, well, maybe try faith for the sake of the discussion, even though it's a little bit afterwards. But some liberal kind of progressive idea of programming, such that you you had sustaining time and then time that you had to pay for. And the history of that is a number of, you know, scholars and historians and academics is that, yeah, conservatives oftentimes have had to pay for all of that, uh, which is oftentimes why I think the marketing is so much better, uh, the branding is so much better, the work is so much better. For the second book I'm reading, you know, it's not necessarily intimately connected, but texts that Richard Vigory wrote mm-hmm. in the 70s and just how hard and just how, you know, even something like direct mail uh, becomes an alternative channel that conservatives are sort of jumping upon and that's really the second book, maybe, really taking the page out of Barry Goldwater's book, Vigory coming in and saying, we can do a lot with this. And that's, in many ways, kind of rewrites the country in some capacity. Right. And, and having lived through a lot of that, people miss things that, uh, that are really important, such as the fact that if, if you go back to 1964 in that period, Phyllis Schlafly, who uh, would, would establish the Eagle Forum, uh, she's one of those who figures out her mailing list is actually the source of power. Uh, 
exactly. that 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 mailing list is uh, is the way to communicate with people, and she she finds that out when others ask her for it. That's when she figures out that's really where the power is. It's in the it's in that mailing list. But going back to uh, to to the the Protestant Catholic uh, Jew Will Herberg civil religion. Uh, the only thing I would press back on what you said is that I think there's a little bit more rationality, um, or at least, uh, uh, um, how can I say, agency in, uh, in in the FCC and the powers that be trying to restrict the airwaves and, and broadcast uh, uh, avenues uh, to those considered safe for this modern democratic experiment. And mainline Protestantism, more liberal Protestantism, was seen as absolutely safe in establishment. But one of the things I see few people point to is that if you look at the religious composition of the United States Congress at that time, it's overwhelmingly mainline Protestant. Mm. You know, if you were to check today's, uh, this Congress versus, uh, say, uh, uh, Congress from, from 1966, one of the most astounding things is, is the fact that Episcopalians are basically in the driver's seat. Uh, and then, not now. And, yeah. and and I think uh, most evangelicals just don't recognize there weren't that many evangelicals in Congress, as a matter of fact, uh, during that period. So the main line was mainline for more than one reason. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's fair. Um, and I kind of talk a little bit about how Lear participates in that, you know, either quite literally or maybe implicitly and sometimes in, inherently. Um, I think he benefits from that, from a particular kind of power and influence and yeah, maybe the word, maybe you were looking for something like intentionality, maybe, like a little bit sure. more kind of purpose to sort of circumscribe, you know, who is going to be acceptable and who's not. Um, in many ways, that's what the study of religion is all about, is kind of how either liberal democracy or individuals themselves identify what's good religion and bad religion. You know, and ideally in the, in the classroom, we're working to unpack those things contextualize those things and show how those things get leveraged in the public square. Right. And one of the things that uh, is, is uh, rather a standard, and, and understandably, and I say as a theologian in theological terms, is that the stronger the, uh, the, the theological truth claims, the more uh, sinister or threatening they may appear to the powers that be, simply because they demand a higher allegiance. And uh, so you, you you can certainly see that, and that's why I think a very interesting test case in all of this is the Catholic auxiliary bishop Fulton Sheen, because I think they saw him as uh, very much a part of the mainstream until his uh, anti-communism became so transparent that I think he actually scared the people who had given him the airwaves in the first place. Hmm. Hmm. That's, yeah, I mean, I could see that, especially, well, imagine if that were today, you know, like how fast that would happen. You know, we've gone from 24-hour news to sort of instantaneous news and how right. quickly that would get out. But, yeah, I mean, it doesn't take much for the winds to kind of turn and to be seen in very different ways. Now, thinking about Norman Lear, uh, there, there's a, a, a fast-forward in our conversation now to television, let's say, not in the 70s, but in the 60s, because uh, the timeline has to be, I think, the electronic church emerging uh, after you've already got uh, All in the Family and mod yeah. and all the rest uh because basically yeah. you don't have that until the 70s but yeah. uh, but in the 60s norman lear and, and uh and others uh uh in a certain colleagueship with him they saw the sitcom as an opportunity to transform america uh in ways that they saw absolutely necessary for a project of human liberation i'll just put it that way and uh so but that would not be obvious 
if you look at television in the, the early 60s, what made it obvious to them? What, what did they get that others did not see? So the opportunity is the content coming together with the commercial interests, um, because to get anything on TV is expensive and difficult. And the show itself went through all of the three networks that were on at the time. You know, we kind of forget that. Like, that, there weren't that many networks on. There really wasn't that much TV to even watch. Um, so talk about reception. Talk about how many people are watching. Um, so if anything, it was the coming together of commercial and content because Lear was kind of fed up uh, with a certain type of programming with the kind of Bewitched and Mr. Ed and Beverly Hillbillies. And he just um, sort of coming after the, the comment of maybe in the 50s or 60s that television is a vast wasteland. Right. I don't remember who said that, but Lear, that's in the back of his head. Um, Lear sees an opportunity to combine this kind of new interest to what's happening on the ground, to be hip, to be in the know, all that kind of stuff. And then the networks, even though I had to go through all three of them before it landed anywhere, they thought, okay, well, we have a little bit of a commercial interest here as well uh, because we can make a little bit of money by programming to younger demographic individuals, um, those who live in the cities, those who want to be in the know, those who want to be up to date on what's going on. Um, so in many ways, uh, if a program, because the show like All in the Family obviously was groundbreaking uh, for any number of different reasons, uh, but it was really, you know, because he had to do battle with standards and practices for the first episode, for the, just the very first one, just because of what was implied when, um, and it's so funny because in the pilot, Archie and Edith are at church. And I think it's one of the more maybe sort of underestimated moments, but when Archie comes back, he's complaining about the pastor. You know, he's complaining about what the pastor is saying and how it's not very relevant and it's just kind of out of touch and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so Lear had to even do a battle with standards and practices just over the what was implied. You know, what, what are Mike and Gloria, you know, doing upstairs as uh, Archie and Edith are away at church? Um, so it, it took a little bit of sort of working that out in the early days, but ultimately it was groundbreaking content that the network saw an opportunity to branch out, uh, to perhaps meet new demographics. So did it work that way? I mean, you, you said something very interesting that I didn't expect. You said that uh, the network saw an opportunity to make some money off of reaching a younger viewership. I, I'm just really curious about this. Is that what happened? It reached a vast viewership, but is it rightly characterized as young? No, yeah. So obviously it's one of the most well-known programs. I mean, hundreds of millions of people are watching it. Um, his chair's in the Smithsonian. But as far as the rationale, like the debates about within the circles, within the network rooms and the boardrooms, they obviously at the time didn't know it was going to become one of America's most iconic shows in the history of television. You know, no one could ever see that. I mean, nothing like Archie Bunker had ever graced American televisions really ever. Um, I mean, Lear's argument is that, you know, there are people like that every day. Um, and I think there's still people like that every day. Um, and so I think you also said that Lear didn't say anything that weren't, that wasn't already being said on playgrounds around the country. Um, so yes, eventually, as far as the legacy, as far as the takeaway, it was a tremendous kind of success, but the rationale, the kind of argument to make it happen ultimately at least at first, was that the network saw an opportunity, yeah. at least on the finances, and it kind of came together. But yeah, I mean, over time, it was, you know, it took over the imagination. I mean, ABC is doing reenactments of it still. Um, so Lear is still, 
in some part of the imagination, in some capacity, even at 97. Yeah, an amazing figure, and one of the most important figures in, in modern America, as a matter of fact. But the, I, I, the reason I raised the youth question is, uh, so I grew up in an extremely conservative context, extremely, so extremely that uh, uh, the, the question was, can you watch any television? Uh, yeah. So uh, All in the Family emerges. And, uh, of course, with the flushing toilet and uh, the innuendo, the raised <laughs> yeah, eyebrows, right, right. you know, uh, right. all this. It was uh, it was just astounding. And then the portrayal of Archie Bunker as uh, yeah. by Carol O'Connor and, of course, uh, Gene Stapleton with Edith and the, the whole thing. But here's the amazing thing. Um, conservatives watched All in the Family and loved it. They didn't mm. love everything about it. But one of the greatest ironies in all of this is that uh, conservatives lined up to watch uh, All in the Family. Uh, and even when they're aggravated by it, far more aggravated, by the way, uh, by the series Maud uh, than uh, All I in the Family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the spinoff through uh, Archie's uh, sister-in-law, yeah. uh, B. Arthur, playing Maud, because that, that show was just a step further addressing abortion and so many issues mm-hmm. just head on. And, mm-hmm. and in a way that, frankly, wasn't so funny. Uh, Archie Bunker's mm-hmm. just, uh, uh, I should say, Carol O'Connor, is just one of the great comic television actors of all time. Uh, his, his face was, uh, was able to communicate more than most people with words. And well, uh, the, the ensemble was an amazing cast with Rob Reiner and Sally Struthers and all the rest. And you just look at this and you go, this, this was one of those rare moments. But I've often thought, uh, and I, 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 I do know Martin Marty. I don't know Norman Lear. Mm-hmm. But uh, talking with Martin Marty, we actually talked about this one time. This is, this is one of those amazing things. Conservatives <laughs> have a sense of humor about themselves. Yeah. And, uh, and, and sometimes, I mean, f- frankly, it was one of the rare portrayals of uh, kind of a populist everyman that exactly. uh, that was at the center of the program. I, and, and that's something I didn't see you address directly, but Carol O'Connor was the center of that program. You, you would have people like that who might be the neighbor, the crotchety uncle or whatever, mm-hmm. but at the center mm-hmm. of the program, that was something new. And Archie Bunker, in spite of himself, was lovable. Yeah, there's so much there. Uh, let me see if I can even get at a lot of that. Yeah, so being at the center... Um, so the fact that multiple people from various sides of the aisle and spectrum can understand something simultaneously in two different ways, I think, speaks to the function of satire. You know, I think the yeah. question is, were we laughing with him or were we laughing at him? Yeah. And here's the, th- here's the thing. I mean, <laughs> excuse me, ultimately, he is human. He is humanized. He has very human moments, especially when he gets trapped in the elevator and someone has birth, and it's just this most unbelievable thing. I mean, all in the family is 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 the stage. You know, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm trying to address the things you're saying and like the the face, Archie's face. I mean, that's from the stage. All these individuals are veterans of of the stage in many ways versus the sitcom, the kind of built sets and all of yeah. that. Good point. An amazing cast. Carol O'Connor gets called out in the streets. You know, people yell at him, go Archie, go Archie. And he's not the most, you know, conservative individual. Uh, So You could say that more strongly, but yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, even I I quote him in the book, uh, O'Connor and others, and, you know, the idea of Archie was that you weren't supposed to be like him. 
you know, the idea was that America in some capacity was attempting to move past him. But I think conservatives understood that. I, I do. No, I, th- and, I think I oh, think okay, they did. Okay. I'm, I'm saying I okay. think conservatives understood that. So uh, I okay. mean, so I'm trying to state this carefully and kind of confessionally here, just in terms of my own lifetime. Uh, I've seen I saw a massive change in the language, expressions, humor of uh, of conservatives in America about oh. the same time. So in other words, I think there were just a lot of especially young. I, I was a I was a in elementary school when it started, but in high school when it ended, I think there were a lot of young conservatives who, who could see in Archie Bunker our uh, grandfather uh, or father, but said, I'm never going to use that humor. I would never do. In, in other words, I, I don't think, I think conservatives need to recognize there were some moral, there was some moral messaging in All in the Family that just about every conservative I know right now would say is absolutely right. Uh, might not have in 1967. But but I think uh, undoubtedly would uh, in 2020. So I, I think the show probably operated on many, many more multiple layers than uh, than any of us can understand. Yeah, I think so, too. And I mean, that's you know, I, I show my students the show and they can't really understand it at all. Shows either have to be dramatic or they have to be funny. You know, with Norman's programming, you were crying and laughing simultaneously and some of the kids were a little uncomfortable. Some of the students, like, how do I yeah. understand it? I mean, am I, am I yeah. supposed to laugh? Am I supposed to cry? I don't. Uh, why are people yelling at each other? Why is it such a high volume? Um, you know, and so much of it is autobiographical. You know, so much of all in the family and mod is just yeah. Norman writing from his life. Yeah. I mean, his dad came up with all the catchphrases for the show. You know, meathead, wow. laziest white boy I'd ever met. You know, he, <laughs> his dad was King Lear. So, yeah. I mean, even. Yeah, even with Maud, I mean, Lear wrote so much of himself into Maud. Maud is the closest televisual representation of Lear's personal aspiration that he's, you know, put on TV. At least that's what he writes. Americans in general, and certainly American Christians specifically, know that popular culture matters. But we often are unaware of what is behind those television programs, that popular music, what's behind the books and the publishing industry. All of that is largely at a remove from where we get to look. Benjamin Rolski helps us to see behind the screen, so to speak, when we're talking about some of the most important and influential television programs and people behind them of the 1970s and beyond. So I can remember specific moments in All in the Family. I can remember one moment, and of course I was seeing it live, there wasn't any other way to see it. Yeah. And yeah. I saw it live, and... Uh, and I'm not going to use the the discourse from the the program, but uh, but he's in an argument with Meathead, his son-in-law, as was so often mm-hmm. the case, and uh, and and the son-in-law uses is offended by Archie's use of an ethnic slur, mm-hmm. and and yet he uses the 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 diff, a different ethnic slur than what Archie used, and Archie in anger responds to me, says, you don't know this. And he starts going through a list of different peoples and their, uh, their, the ethnic slurs identified with them. And then right. I can remember seeing that and thinking, I've never heard anybody talk that way. I'm, I'm glad I've never heard anybody talk that way. But, yeah. but looking back at it, 
I'll bet you that was the last time anybody talked that way on uh, television. I, I, I can't document that, but I'll just say it was a sea yeah. change. It's one of those moments where, okay, it's been said out loud. Nobody's ever going to do that again. Well, yeah, and here's my and my reading of that is, you know, I go back and forth between, you know, in the early 70s you had Sanford and Son, but by the early 80s you have the Cosby Show. Right. So in some capacity it's yeah. like a reaction over and against how we're portraying people of color. Right. You know, so by the time you get to Cosby, like everyone has a Ph.D., and, and that would and that would be criticized severely now. Yeah, no, and that's why representation is yeah. such a difficult thing to get. I mean, even when you're talking about the quote unquote Pentecostal or the Elmer Gantries or any of these things over the years, or to think that you can represent a particular thing in some sort of platonic like perfectness is is sort of a challenge. Sure. Uh, now, uh, and there's so much more I'd like to talk about there, but two things I, I really want to get to. One is. Uh, earlier in your book, you talk about the FCC, and uh, you, you talk about the fact that uh, but before Norman Lear and, and others kind of saw their work as necessary, um, the, uh, the, the FCC, and uh, let's just say the powers that be, had, uh, had pretty clearly decided that they wanted to present kind of tame, mainstream, more liberal religion on television. And, uh, and then you do have... Uh, the the fact that I'll be honest, I think Norman Lear and and others like him they they were preaching through their sitcoms. Uh, so there was a, yeah. there was a lot of preaching. Television had a point. I guess that's the, there, there's no such thing as a neutral medium. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and Lear and 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 uh, his associates understood that they were unapologetically non neutral. Unapologetically non-neutral, all the while um, claiming some sort of neutrality at the same time. Right. You know, it's kind of like a, it's a, it's somewhat tough, right? So in some capacity, um, a civil religious space, I think, you know, where he's occupying from is not an empty kind of space. It's kind of a Protestant mainline kind of space that creates a lot of that. Um, and even within the FCC, yeah, like I, I can't remember, but the, this, the distinctions between who paid for time and who got it for free, you know, those who got it for free were oftentimes, you know, like Presbyterians or Episcopalians or something like that. Um, the hour of this, the hour of that. It was pretty, yeah, like middle of the road. Extremely. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think in that, I think, um, you know, I listen to a lot of sports talk radio, and, and I think even the radio is supposed to be executed in the name of the public interest. And so I always was curious about what that meant. And so I went back into the literature and into the documents, and it goes back, you know, teens, 20s, 30s, different court cases trying to identify really what is the public interest. And what you kind of learn is that, you know, it's not all that far removed from, say, like the public good or something like public broadcasting or, you know, something like that. But Absolutely. built into that, obviously, are certain are certain commitments, you know, obviously, are certain investments in what religion means, what spirituality means, what education means, what raising children means. I mean, I, I wrote a piece on the faith background of Mr. Rogers. Um, and in many ways, you know, Lear or Rogers is the children's programming arm of relevance of what Lear is doing. And Lear is on the sitcom in prime time, and Rogers is doing his thing with the fledgling kind of burgeoning nascent PBS. And so you have this moment of kind of relevance, which in, theory, which in sort of actuality is then protected by this idea of the public interest, which is kind of has certain like mainline Protestant sort of ideas of religion built into it. So it's all kind of amplifying itself at the same time. So what happened in uh, most situations is that, and I'll just speak for evangelicals uh, and uh, 
those defined as fundamentalists. What, what they had to do was uh, either have, have like Carl McIntyre's pirate radio off the off the coast, right. or you right. had to uh, to settle for uh, about three different things. One was extremely low power stations that you basically had to know existed in order to hear them. Uh, yeah, so right. you know, and and, and restricted, or right. you were in the extremely uh, off clock hours, uh, the middle right. of the night, or or something like right. that. Or you had to buy the time, and and that's where you 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 zero in on that uh, the electronic church. It was it, they learned to buy time, and they learned to be good at it. Interestingly, yeah. in my own lifetime, I've seen uh, uh, numerous rounds of conservatives ask the question, "Why don't we do what Norman Lear did with, uh, say, comedy or drama or whatever?" And, really? and the, the, yeah, but the answer is because we're not good at it. Um, and I I don't mean that in terms of expertise, although that's probably true too. But I mean it. it in terms, <laughs> I mean it in term because the expertise right. turns out very good in in other aspects. But when it when it comes to telling a story, uh, I mean, comedy's kind of got to transgress, and by definition, um, we're not very good at transgressing. Uh, that, that's kind of the whole point. That's funny, yeah. Yeah, and so yeah. It, it it the com it's it's kind of like uh, you know the Billy Graham Association's uh, you know youth movies. They never were funny. Uh, they couldn't yeah. be funny. Uh, so they 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 were always serious. But looking at that, the way you tell the story, we've got to fast forward to people for the American way. Because, again, I, I'm, this is not abstract for me. Uh, I, yeah, I, 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 when I was I in college and in seminary, uh, people for the American way was one of the, uh, say, two or three most divisive, controversial developments. And uh, it, it quickly became us versus them. So as as you explain Norman Lear, how did how did Norman Lear come to found and to lead with such missionary zeal an organization known as People for the American Way, and why did he even call it that? Yeah, that's nicely said. Um, it kind of speaks to whatever these culture wars are. I mean, they're kind of getting off the ground as we move from the 60s into the 70s. We get Vietnam, we get Watergate, we get a gradual kind of disillusion with public institutions and we get Carter and the born again kind of experience and you know Lear is watching all of that he's a interested commentator he's always had just a knack for this kind of subject matter like in the early 80s he purchased Robert Frost's home and since then he always takes this kind of group of luminaries up there and they have these kind of seminars it's almost like the Lear seminars on you know faith or belief or something like that so of course Marty and people like Bill Moyers and you know, others would talk and chat. And so, you know, Lear has a certain investment in the public and what that means. Um, so when the network's trying to institute family viewing hour in the early to mid-70s, he sues the heck out of them based on the First Amendment, based on censorship. Um, you know, we program in the public interest. You can't do this. So he's already rehearsing certain things that he'll then kind of direct court towards explicitly kind of conservatives. Um, but at the same time, like he's even watching Falwell. Um, he's being reported about in stories with Falwell. They almost become two sides of the same coin. Uh, so, of course, you get the moral majority, which takes off, what, in the mid to late 70s. And, I mean, if anything, a lot of progressive activism is reactive. Um, maybe in the 60s it wasn't necessarily reactive, but I think since the 70s onwards it's been kind of reactive. 
meaning reacting to a more kind of conservative impulse or conservative moment or movement or something. I still don't quite understand it uh, uh, as, as to how Lear became so uh, personally involved. So I, I knew Jerry Falwell well uh, and uh, spoke for him and, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, knew him long enough that I could see even certain uh, developments in his, his way of engaging these issues. I, I didn't know him when he started The Moral Majority. I was too young. But, uh, but you know, the old-time gospel hour, uh, and you go down uh, the list of these, uh, what, what Norman Lear would call the electronic church, but these, uh, uh, yeah. these televised uh, ministries, um, they, uh, no one really saw them as a political threat in, in, when they emerged in the 1970s. Jerry Falwell was basically uh, preaching the gospel, calling people to Christ. Uh, that, that was, uh, and, and, and preaching the message, uh, start, starting... Liberty University as a you know to train you know young warriors for Christ as a, a, a you know and and so that that's what he was about. Uh, all that changed. In, in one sense, uh, uh, one catalyst uh, at least was Roe v. Wade, uh, and mm-hmm. and all of a sudden now uh, you do have the rise of, uh, of of the electronic church as a conservative force. By the way, not not universally. I mean, you, you didn't have Robert mm-hmm. Schuler very involved in any of these causes. But, mm. but nonetheless, a lot of them were. But it's still hard for me to imagine how Norman Lear, operating in Norman Lear's world, seeing Jerry Falwell and saying, I need to know more about him. There, there, I, somehow there's a catalyst I'm missing somewhere. Well, it's less I want to know more and a little bit I'm kind of repulsed by. Hmm. You know, I don't think that's too far removed. I mean, moral, uh, you know, authoritarians. Um, I have some of... Lear's pro, you know, writings um, where he kind of is saying, you know, these aren't necessarily the people from, you know, scopes. You know, these people know how to use computers. Like these people know how to use computers or like television, and they know how to reach a really wide audience. Um, so part of it is, part of it is the specter of Coglin. You know, part of it is this is the kind of memories of quotas. Well, when you you mentioned Father Coughlin, uh, for yeah. for some listening, explain who he was. Well, basically, and I can never figure out if it's Coughlin or Coughlin, but he's basically a Catholic uh, radio preacher who is, at least in time, starts going after FDR. Um, he becomes somewhat anti-Semitic. Uh, he's saying things that aren't necessarily um, the best over public airways, which is why the FCC starts to kind of create a lot of these ideas of what the public interest is and how do we sort of regulate the airwaves in a little bit of a better way. Um, and so... What happens is Lear has a lot of this in the background, and here's the catalyst. Um, you know, like, like others, perhaps he's. I think he's watching Jimmy Swagger. He's watching something late night um, because All in the Family is the progenitor for Right Watch. You know, in many ways, right, right. It's an organization that keeps tabs on um, conservative groups. And so Lear is watching. You know, and I think Swagger asks his congregation for the removal of a Supreme Court justice you know, or something like that. And Lear just goes bonkers to a certain extent. He sees that as a fundamental violation. Um, And he decides he first wanted to put a movie together. Um, And I I think the movie was going to be called Religion or something. It was going to have two characters. One character gets caught up in electronic church. The other character has to rescue that character. Obviously, there's a built-in message there. So he's saying something about televangelists. He's saying something about the electronic church. He's saying something about money. He's saying something about, you know, the tax-exempt statuses of these churches. And so he, 
he sees this moment and it catalyzes him in many ways. He wants to do a movie, but instead it takes too long and he does PSAs. And the PSAs are run locally. They're run different places, Washington, D.C. And it's a famous PSA. It's someone who's in a forklift and he's in a hard hat and he steps out and he says, you know, a lot of preachers today are telling us how to vote. You know, they're telling us what to vote for. And, you know, my wife, she agrees with everything the preacher says, so she's 100% Christian. You know, my son, he maybe doesn't, so he's less a Christian. And so Lear basically starts to make this argument, and people for the American way start to say that how on earth do, in this case, you know, conservative pastors and preachers, how can they say these things? You know, these are fundamental violations of church and state. And in a tit-for-tat kind of way, if one is the moral majority, then Lear decides, okay, well, we're going to create people for the American way. Obviously, each one is kind of exclusionary in its own sort of renderings. Um, but the American way itself is also part of the story. You know, the American way is also tri-faith. It's also Protestant Catholic Jew. It also has a story that reinforces what Lear wants to do all the while. So when he starts having meetings with Hesburgh and Marty, because that's when the real work starts, is that he has to get all of their opinions. He goes to see all these fancy professors at different places and starts writing position papers and starts writing mission statements and, and PSAs broaden out. They start to include, you know, Goldie Hawn, uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, clever messages about, you know, what music do you like or how do you like your eggs? And, you know, the, the commercials usually, difference of opinion, you know, that's the American way. Because for Lear, he sees the other side and he doesn't see any difference of opinion. He sees someone bludgeoning the public square to try and privatize it. Um, so for him, you know, the catalyst, I think, is swaggered or seeing this sort of fundamental violation in his own mind about the separation of church and state and what people can say, even if it is simply preaching, you know, the gospel. Um, but even still, like Lear's watching Jerry Falwell's I Love America rallies, and in many ways is inspired to do I Love Liberty, which happens after Reagan gets elected. So, you know, they're intimately connected, but that's the milieu that Lear's kind of working with, especially as Reagan is ascending and he becomes the poster child for conservative evangelical America, which I think takes a bit of work, a, a bit of manufacturing, um, you know, make America great again. That's something that was invented in many ways to make Reagan possible. Yeah. Um, so Lear is, is um, he's trying yeah. to combat that in the best way he can, and he knows how to do that through um, television. Now, I Love Liberty, which became the great project of Norman Lear and People for the American Way, was supposed to be this great catalyst to awaken America to the danger of the new Christian right. And uh, uh, I saw it at the time, and I thought, oh. it, I thought it was pretty slick, uh, mm-hmm. but wasn't sure what effect it would have. Uh, I, saw exactly. it, I, saw it just, I saw it just a few years ago, and it appeared to me then to be the preachiest thing I'd ever seen on television. <laughs> <laughs> and even Marty will admit that if you ask him. He'll really? admit that one of the sketches was one of the most knee-jerk, kind of whatever you want to say. And he admits it. I have it in the book somewhere. So he he acknowledges that right from the get-go. You know, Dr. Marty, at the same time, at the University of Chicago, and uh, I've uh, been very thankful for a friendship with him. We're, we're in different theological worlds, but uh, but he, sure. <laughs> a, a, a gracious relationship. He's a kindly... Uh, show me around his, uh, his, his, his home and his, his working library. He's a very, very gracious oh, wow. man, very gracious man. And, uh, uh, but he and, and colleagues at the University of Chicago started what was called the Fundamentalism Project uh, at about the same that time. That they did. And uh, so I always feel like I'm a little bit of a lab rat whenever I'm in conversation with some of the folks at Chicago because— uh, That's and, and, fair. Yeah. <laughs> but That's I, fair. I, I don't define myself as a fundamentalist but as an evangelical, but to them I'm definitely a fundamentalist. 
And, uh, and so they saw fundamentalism as this worldwide phenomenon sociologically. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, what always offended me by that, offends too strong a word, was, you know, what, what constitutes my self-identity is theological, I, I, you know, not so much, uh, you know, sociological. And, and oddly enough, I think Martin Marty was the one person who got that. Uh, mm. Because he does understand theology, he really does, and uh, and I I think he he did understand that, uh, and, and uh, so I was a little bit surprised when I came to find out later how involved he had been even in writing much of I Love Liberty, uh, so yeah. you know it it was an amazing uh, moment in time. I it just when you had the confluence of the most famous divinity professor at the University of Chicago and Norman Lear. And, uh, and and then also, frankly, uh, major political figures, because, uh, I mean, you had yeah. you had fascinating. Uh, I mean, I, I believe Gerald Ford appeared on it as a former president. Well, here's the thing. So, I mean, yeah. the, you know, the question is, do you want to have like, do you want to have addresses or do you want to have a primetime television show? Yeah. Like, that's what I think about. And ultimately, the ones with the mailing list have moved the country. You know, it's not necessarily the ones with the shows. Right. I mean, that's kind of the thing to take away from all of this. But, I mean, he had Barry Goldwater in the special, but not unlike Archie Bunker and not unlike others, other characters who are maybe conservative and libertarian and tend to be the kind of comic relief. You know, Barry Goldwater, perhaps one of the most important figures in the second half of the 20th century, comes out and he's basically the butt of a joke. You know, he, like, comes out and he says something like, or I think there was a huge parade. It was this unbelievable thing, super patriotic. And then he comes out and it says, and I thought that was going to be patriotic, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, and, but that's how it was pitched because it had to be pitched to the network to be bipartisan. So that means you had to have, um, the, I think, Johnson, uh, Johnson's wife, I think, uh, Ford. Uh, that's right. Um, mm-hmm. And then you had Goldwater appear. And, but people at the time were writing about how it was a little bit sketchy, you know, how ABC gave people for the American Way money to sort of produce it. And, right. and people at the time were writing it in the New York Times or Los Angeles Times about, you know, what is this exactly? You know, is this advocacy? Is, it, is this programming? Is this entertainment? You know, what exactly is this? Uh, and yeah, I mean, Marty... You know, he wrote a sketch that had Christopher Reeve in it, and he was this priest, and he's arguing with Walter Matthau about living next to your neighbor, and I'm not living next to no Catholic. And, I mean, it was the most unbelievable thing, but all of it is didactic. You know, I probably should have said that from the onset. Lear's programming is didactic. It's not programming for its own sake. You know, that's just like a flashing television screen. Didactic in the sense of it's educational, it's purposeful, it's meant to give you something to think about as you finish watching it. Now, whether that you know did any good with I Love Liberty is kind of you know up, up for grabs. You could have enjoyed Robin Williams doing stand-up as the American flag. I think that would be very apropos, perhaps, um, in addressing everything that's sort of going on. You had Gregory Hines doing an amazing musical number and dance number. And then you had Burt Lancaster, I think, um, recite the words of Justice Learned Hand, who was a big inspiration for Norman Lear. I mean, that's where Lear's spirit of liberty comes from. He says spirit of spirit of. And I play with that. It's not this Pentecostal spirit. It's not the spirit that descends. It's the spirit of liberty. It's the spirit of fairness. It's the spirit of justice, you know, something along those lines. But spirit's obviously a multivalent term. But I play around with that kind of cross-pollination because of the fact that so many people were expressing themselves in those terms, yet they're occupying radically different political positions in a very tumultuous time in America's history. 
So fast forward to uh, 2020. Is there a religious left? You clearly, in fact, in one of the closing sections of your book, you talk about uh, a politics of spiritual liberalism. Is, is there such a thing uh, on the political scene today? I think there is, um, but I think it's a little, I think it's become a little untethered um, from what, from some of the things that help to get off the ground. Um, so I think, you know, a book just, well, a number of books are coming out on, you know, in addition to mine, um, that are sort of exploring this. It, it sort of depends on where you look and how you define it. I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're progressive writing it, the first thing you're going to say is, well, there is, and it's nothing like the religious right, and blah, 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 and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is, which is fine. It's not as systematized. It's not as sort of top-down. Um, I think in many ways the organizing, the direct mailing, the unifying message um, from top to bottom that I think is so effective on on the right when it comes to organizing anything. Um, you know, I think there is, but I think it's it's sort of trying yeah. to find itself in a world where, you know, protests still matter. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of it. But at the same time, I don't know if the symbology and the symbolism of kind of progressive prophetic utterances are really being understood in the way that they want them to be understood. Um, so a lot of that, and I'm thinking about this literally as I'm sort of finishing up a piece, um, you know, a lot of it depended on the pastor being out in front. We talk about the 60s. If any, if conservatives have been good at anything, it's been reappropriating and deploying what progressives put into the world. Um, so in the, in the 60s, we had King. By the 70s, we get someone like Falwell. So to me, there's been such a kind of capturing of the public script of religion in America by conservatives, you know, because they've worked very, very hard, you know, whether that's Buckley or Rusher or Vigory or Phillips or any of the new right individuals in the 70s. I think in many ways the left has played on a terrain that's not of their own defining and choosing. And as such, I think they need a, they have to find a little bit more grounding in a public imagination that's a bit, you know, molded a bit more by the Milton Friedmans and the Reagans than they are any kind of countercultural sort of social ethic out of the 60s. And so part of it is you're sort of yelling into the maw, but oftentimes you're not really being heard because part of it is the cacophony of media today. Like how on earth, and I think conservatives do this much better with the, with the messaging of getting something out there that people understand, something centralized, something that's, that's digestible. Um, so I think there is. Um, it's disparate. It's kind of amorphous, um, definitely reactive. Um, I think there's potential there. Uh, but I also think, you know, I'm very constructive and pretty critical, you know, in my own writing just because I see potential. But then I see a movement that's perhaps a little untethered from some of the things that it's trying to do. Yeah. One of the great questions to me as a theologian looking at, at public culture and uh and having to use a term like secularization as a way of describing the, the, the loss of the binding authority of theism in the culture, uh, the, the left is far more secular by definition and, and by, by self-definition, and, and that's mm -hmm. a, a religious or spiritual left becomes uh, far, far more uh, uh, tenuous. And mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, when I am asked about that, I say, look, just look at the shift you mentioned Dr. King. Just look at the shift from the civil rights movement of the 60s uh, to Black Lives Matter. And uh, mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter as a movement explicitly is established without uh, clergy at the center, whereas clergy, yeah. uh, uh, I yeah. mean, almost all the moral yep. authority in the civil rights movement was the Reverend 
King, the Reverend Abernathy. You know, it was it was the Reverend. That's and, all. And yeah. now that's uh, that's just no longer the case. Yeah, that's really. I mean, I just saw an article actually just came out on kind of the religious sensibilities of sort of Black Lives Matter and protests and stuff right now, and I haven't looked at it yet. But yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right, and I and I think the left is sort of or the religious left is sort of stuck in that imagination a little bit. I mean, not to say that William Barber can't do a number of different things, but at the same time, you know, we might have to reimagine or imagine different different equations, different formulas. If it's just a matter of having sort of a pastor out front, is it as simple as that? Like, I don't know. I think it's sort of been commodified. So I think it's, you know, it's trying to find, it's trying to find its footing and some traction. Um, but I think at the same time, it's just, it's having some difficulty. And uh, I think, you know, we saw obviously with Mayor Pete, it kind of popped up here and there. You know, I think the narrative about progressives being somewhat disingenuous about a lot of that, um, it really, you know, comes off like that. Um, you know, I think conservatives have worked very hard at making progressives seem kind of fat-handed and somewhat stumbling when it comes to questions of religion. But at the same time, like you say, there's a, there are a number of self-identified secular individuals, atheists, agnostics, the nuns. So obviously, progressivism sees that as a strength. But how to come to how to bring that symphony together? Yeah. The, and who, who and who the conductor is going to be can be a little difficult because it's it pushes against centralization. So then, how are you going to who's going to bring some centrality to that message? And I think they're trying to find that right now. Yeah, I often point to another dichotomy, not just uh, looking at the civil rights movement versus Black Lives Matter. I also say when you look at the right and the left in America, and uh, I don't say that as one who's uninvolved. But uh, yeah, right. when you look at the, 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 the conservative-liberal divide in the United States, the, the pattern that I see is this, amongst others, is that liberals have to say, I'm less religious than it might look, and conservatives have to say, I'm more religious than it might look, uh, huh. to give reassurance to their, own, uh, to their own people. In other words, yeah, right. uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very different dynamic. And uh, as you close your book on page 174, you write, the study has argued that since the beginning of the 1960s, the United States and its citizens have been engaged, uh, have engaged one another in prolonged cultural warfare over the most fundamental assumptions about the relationship between religion, the state, and the protection of the public good. If we know anything from looking at uh, the uh, the realities of our own day, that's an mm-hmm. ongoing debate. Very much, and it's one that I don't know where the end is. Um, you know, I think there's people write in this time that politics become a little bit more intimate, you know, assuming they weren't before, but in the sense of, you know, at one point we were arguing about maybe GDP or about foreign, foreign policy, domestic policy, something like that. In the 60s and 70s, we get this kind of generation of, of something called the social issue. And that was what relevance was about. You know, we had to be re- relevant, or people at the time had to be relevant to social issues, to the social issue. So at the time, that was civil rights. But about, you know, less than 10 years later, it's the unborn fetus is the social issue. And obviously, it broadened out to guns, to homosexuality, to abortion, to any of the number of sort of hot-button, quote-unquote, hot-button sort of issues that we say today. And, you know, I um, I talk to a number of conservatives sort of off and on, and I'm beginning to get the sense that, I mean, even with, like, when William Buckley had Falwell on the firing line, I think Buckley was very suspect of Falwell. I mean, for a lot of conservatives, Falwell was sort of, you know, sort of odd. He was being called anti-Semitic. Um, it's an amazing episode. Buckley goes at Falwell relentlessly. Um, because I think deep down, like conservatism, at least in some pockets, get a little kind of antsy. 
you know, over bringing in someone like Falwell or bringing in, say, the Birchers in the 50s and 60s and, um, you know, those sorts of decisions. Um, so I think, you know, in many ways, I think the parties are kind of trying to figure themselves out. You know, I think if one yeah. side has kind of experienced a moment of political exhaustion, you know, the other side has to deal with, well, how does, you know, Trump represent anything conservative? You know, does, does that even make any sense? Um, especially as more moderate conservatives are coming out and being vocal. You know, if, we're, if some are worried about progressivism at the same time, we also need to be worried about conservatism, you know, where it's going and what it's made of and what its future holds. Um, so I, you know, I wish I could tell the future a little bit better, but I mean, it's, it's, um, I'm not sure if it gets any better before it gets any worse, per se, or whatever that phrase is. But yeah, it's a little, it's, it's, it's complex. Well, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say whatever uh, that turns out to be. Uh, there'll be plenty of material for you to write another book. So yeah. that, 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 that will go on. Uh, Benjamin Rolski, it's been a really uh, important conversation. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. One of the interesting questions in the year 2020 is whether or not there is a religious left. And furthermore, if there is one, where is it to be found? Is it very large? Is it significant? That's in the background of the fact that if you turn to the 1960s and 70s, maybe even into the 80s, there certainly was a religious left. And what would surprise many Americans, including American evangelicals, is to know that the religious left, defined in just those terms, was really in the driver's seat of so much of American culture. It had the official imprimatur of the United States government, a safe form of Protestantism that could basically provide civil religion, a glue that would hold society together but would not hold to any particular moral teachings or any prickly doctrines. But of course, the religious left, in conflict with the religious right during the time of the 1980s, set the stage for debates that continue even until now. It's hard for most Americans to remember a time when the religious left really was the public face of religion insofar as popular entertainment, government, the news industry, and all the rest were basically concerned. Benjamin Rolski's analysis of that background is not only fascinating, it's really important. And it's also important because he looks at the artifacts of popular culture, such as those television programs of iconic status, such as All in the Family. But he also looks at the mind, the individual behind those programs. Most importantly, Norman Lear, whose outsized influence in American television gave him the confidence that he could have an outsized influence in American culture, even in American religion. It turned out that his reach really did not extend that far, but that's not to take anything away from the culture-framing, culture-forming power of television. All in the family, it turned out, really did help to effect change in the United States. And it's important in the year 2020 that we look back about four decades maybe even just a little bit more, to recognize how that happened and what it means. Of course, even as we are speaking in the year 2020, gone is the day when there were three major television networks that basically owned the cultural waterfront when it came to sitcoms and dramas, anything on broadcast television. You watched it when they broadcast it, and you watched what they would broadcast and produce, or you saw basically nothing. In the age of ubiquitous information and streaming media, that seems now to be almost impossible to remember. 
But Benjamin Rolski's book helps us to remember and also helps us to think about the meaning of this cultural conflict, not only in the 1970s, but in our own times, and even as it sets the stage for the future beyond. Or perhaps to put it another way, if you look at the young people on American college and university campuses these days, it's very unlikely that they ever watched Archie Bunker on television. But the world they inhabit, the world they now know on those campuses, was transformed, indeed, long ago, by the cultural movement that also produced the sitcom brought to us by Norman Lear, All in the Family, with Archie Bunker. Finally, it also reminds us of the power of narrative, the power of television, the power of story, because, of course, Archie Bunker isn't a real person. Not the Archie Bunker that was the character on All in the Family. But here's the interesting thing. It can be argued that Archie Bunker, who wasn't real, had a much larger influence on American culture than most of the rest of us who are real. That was the power of television then, and we dare not diminish or try to minimize it even now. And that's why Christians have to think about these things and think seriously. And that's why we had this conversation today on Thinking in Public. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.